1999, a guy named David Phillips realized that the return on a mail-in rebate for um, the price of a healthy choice pudding snack was actually more than what it cost to buy it. So the mail-in rebate actually was worth more money than the actual pudding snack. So what he did is he bought 12,150 pudding snacks, which cost him about 3,500 bucks. And then he sent in the rebate and he got over a million frequent flyer miles from American uh, Airlines through that. And then get this. So and to avoid suspicion, he claimed, this is in 99, right? He claimed that he was stocking up for Y2K. So he avoided suspicion. I'm still kind of suspicious, but... but Buying the pudding cups. But then get this. He donated all the pudding cups to charity, so they all were uh, write-offs for tax. They were all, um, uh, what does it call it, a tax? A tax, yeah, they were, he had deductions. They were deductions on his taxes. And so he, um, he like, made, in a sense, a lot of money off the um, frequent fire miles, and then he got, yeah, then he got the, uh, but it's, it's all legit though, right? Because the pudding cup company made a mistake and uh, made their rebate worth more than the pudding cup. And so, uh, I guess at that point, he's like, well, I mean, I guess they realized they were caught, you know, so. (laughs) He probably had a warehouse he had to get just for the pudding cups. But I say all that because that's a, you hear all the time, like these quick, fix solutions like get rich quick get rich quick schemes or maybe you like go to Barnes and Noble and you read all these books about you know how to become successful in like 50 days or whatever and that kind of thing and even when it comes to busyness we come across these schemes or like you know uh, all these time management time management books right where it's like you know 12 12 quick steps toward you know not being busy or 12 quick steps toward you know managing your life and getting a hold of your life right you may have seen that kind of stuff before. A lot of blogs written on that kind of thing. Um, and as helpful as those can sometimes be, sometimes I wonder about some of them, uh, a lot of times it's not that easy <laughs> to kind of get a hold of our lives when it comes to that kind of thing. And I think for Christians especially, we realize that busyness is not just our schedules, right? It's not just a problem with our schedules. It's also a problem that's inside of us. And that a lot of times our busyness can be a symptom of some other things as well. And so if you saw on the Facebook post earlier today, which you may have appreciated if, if you saw it, um, we're going to talk about two kind of um, diagnoses tonight. That's the plural diagnosis, I want to say, um, of busyness. Uh, we're going to go through a few of these over the next two or three weeks. And uh, they won't all apply to you. Just because you're busy or you've ever been busy doesn't mean that these were exactly pertaining to you, but I think that they're helpful for us to unpack, and it may uh, be really convicting and, and helpful for you to think through that. And so I want us to look at two tonight, all right? I got, got them for you there on your note sheet, uh, but the first one that we're going to talk about tonight is the idea of pride. So I gave you the first one. Uh, it says, I, uh, diagnosis number one is that I'm weighed down with many manifestations of pride, all right? If you... I gave it to you on your sheet tonight, but Proverbs sixteen eighteen in the ESV says this, uh, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride is actually one of the fundamental sins out there. You hear about the seven deadly sins that exist, you know, pride, gluttony, lust, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but really, if you think about it, pride is the sin that caused Satan to do what he did and to rebel against God and to be cast from heaven. Uh, pride is what led Adam and Eve 
to rebel against God because they believed that they, you know, were at least as smart as God, or maybe they knew better than God. So they're like, you know, God says, don't eat from the tree, uh, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're like, well, why would God hold out on us? Like Satan says, you know, well, God's just holding out on you. He doesn't want you to know those kind of things. And so they're like, oh, we, we know better than God. Like, yeah, we, we need that. And so the, the pride in their hearts led them to say, you know what, like God's holding out on us, but I think we know better than God. Therefore, let's eat from that, from that fruit. And so pride really is kind of the root of really all sin in a lot of different ways. And uh, we'll unpack that a little bit more here in a minute. But when it comes to pride, we've got to be really uh, careful with it and really spend time examining our hearts. And I know that we all have different pride struggles in different ways. And I think that's a, a lifelong process of um, examining that and removing it. But we got to see here in Proverbs sixteen eighteen that pride goes before destruction. And if we're not dealing with our pride in different ways, it's going to lead to our destruction. Even if it's not eternally, but it can lead to some destructive things in our life in terms of relationships and that kind of thing. But I want to give you five, what we're going to call the killer P's of pride here. Because many times our busyness is really a manifestation of our own pride. I'm not saying every time, but many times busyness can be a manifestation of our pride. Now I'm going to unpack that in these five P's here. So the first is people-pleasing. People-pleasing. So a lot of alliteration tonight. It's like a little bit of Zach Pratt, if you know Zach. He loves alliteration. <laughs> Hannah's pleased. All right, so um, <clears throat> people-pleasing. So many times, like some of y'all said, we try to do too much because we're just trying to please everyone around us and make them like us, all right? Uh, and like someone said, there's nothing wrong with wanting to serve people. There's nothing wrong with wanting to do good things, right? But, you know, especially as Christians, we should definitely be about doing good things and serving people. It's a big part of our faith. But there becomes a problem when we start doing good things simply for the approval of people, right? When that heart motivation changes, it becomes a big issue. Um, I'm going to give you a lot of scripture tonight, and so I'm not going to you know, expect you to look all of them up, but I gave you all the references, and so if you want to flip to them, you can, but for sake of time, we won't have to flip through all of them, but I want to kind of give you like a P, like an issue, and then I want to give you a response that scripture has. So Proverbs 29:25 says this, it says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And I like the way the message puts it in this case. It says, the fear of human opinion disables, but trusting in God protects you from that. I kind of like that idea. Because if you think about it, like in the ESV, it says snare there, right? Like a trap. Think about how a trap works. It has some kind of appeal a lot of times, if it's like a baited trap, where there's an initial, <clears throat> initial appeal, but it leads to destruction. And the way the message says it, it disables you. And so a lot of times for us, when it comes to certain things we want to do and even a, a busy schedule, um, and even when it comes to people-pleasing, that, that may seem good at first, and we may feel a lot of affirmation from pleasing these people in different ways and all that we do. But if our goal is simply to please people, then it's eventually going to hurt us. It's going to ensnare us. It's going to disable us from really being able to help people because we're going to get so caught up in approval. Because here's the thing. If you live by the approval of others, you're going to die by their disapproval as well, right? Like if you live by their approval, you'll die by their disapproval. And here's an easy fact of life. You've heard it before. You can't please everyone, right? This doesn't happen, right? If you ever have led anything, any event, whatever, you know you, there's always going to be somebody at least, probably more than one person, who's going to be displeased, not going to be happy. You can't please everybody. So if you live by people's approval, you'll die by their disapproval. 
And so when it comes to really everything in life, but even the idea of busyness, instead of finding out our approval in other people by pleasing them, it may sound like a Sunday school answer, but I think it's incredibly freeing, is that we should find our identity in God and our identity in being approved through Christ by him and let that overflow into how we go about life and what we do. Um, If we find our identity in being a child of God and having the privilege to serve God and having the opportunity to serve him, it's going to transform the way that we view things. We're not going to view certain things as obligations and these burdens we have to carry on in order to please people, but really all of life can be an opportunity to serve him. Uh, You've heard it before, but I gave it to you there. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Simple verse, you've heard it. It says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do it all to the glory of God. Even, even something as simple as eating or drinking or whatever you do, do it to God's glory. Not to your own glory, right? Not to the glory of somebody else, but that your heart, <clears throat> your heart motive should be to honor the Lord in it and to please him in it. Not that you have to fight for his approval because that's given to you in Christ, but from that, you can do everything, even eating and drinking to his glory. So that's the first one is uh, people pleasing. But look at the second one, uh, performance Performance evaluation. Sorry, there's no, not two P's for that one. It's just P-E. So, but performance evaluation, what do I mean by that? I mean this. Uh, we overestimate sometimes, like Hannah said, we overestimate our importance and our ability sometimes. And I'm totally guilty of this. And maybe you've thought this too. Like you um, think, well, if I don't do this, it won't get done. Right? Or if I don't do this, it won't get done well enough. If you've had any group projects before, you're probably thinking about some group projects where you've had that happen but here's the thing, here's the honest truth, is that you're only indispensable until you say no, right? Like you're useful whenever you're available, right? But you're only indispensable until you say no a lot of times. Because the fact is, all you guys, I'm sure, are talented in different ways. You're unique. You have different gifts, right? Um, you're great. But, but you're not irreplaceable. No one is irreplaceable in life for the most part, Right? I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm not irreplaceable either. Like we're all replaceable. And so that's really can be freeing if we think about it, because it means that we don't have to shoulder this burden of thinking, well, I'm really the only person who can do this. And now there may be cases where you're the best person, but it becomes a really crushing burden and it can overwhelm us and exhaust us if we begin to have this mentality of, well, I'm the person that always has to get all these things done, right? But we begin to realize that we're not irreplaceable. It can be a great uh, relief. Uh, Romans 12, 3 says this, and we're going to come back to Romans 12 a little bit later on, um, but it says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So what do you think Paul means when he says we should think of ourselves with sober judgment? What does that mean? I don't think he's not saying, you know, uh, Romans twelve three. He says, but to think of yourselves with sober judgment. Yeah, be objective, be realistic, right? Be honest with your strengths and your weaknesses, your, uh, your limited capacity to do certain things, right? Any other thoughts? Cool, yeah, I totally think that's great. Right? We get to be realistic thinking about ourselves and not think about ourselves in a way that's, you know, like Paul says, more highly than we ought to think, but be realistic about our limitations. Look at the third one, pity. I think Hannah mentioned this one. Uh, Hannah Granger, sorry, two Hannahs. 
the thing about this one, if we're honest, people feel sorry for us when we're busy a lot of times, right? If, you, if you've ever had that moment of walking through your day with someone, they're like, man, that's a full day, you know? And you get that kind of sense of, I mean, <laughs> I think me and Charlie had that conversation last week. Um, but there is some pity involved in being busy, and sometimes we don't ask for it, but sometimes we can also begin to almost relish it sometimes, right? Because here's the thing, we, we begin to get used to this, you know, relishing of it, or we begin to get used to people just thinking, you know, we're so important because we're so busy, and we almost begin to, it's almost this cycle of, well, I'm busy now because I want people to think I'm important. And so, like we said last week, we even begin to exaggerate how busy we really are so that people think um, that we're important, right? And it could be this really strange cycle, but First Thessalonians, right here, see, like we see here, has a great comment for us. First Thessalonians 5.18 says this. I'll read it for you. It says, give thanks in all circumstances. I'll say it again. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, you can't stop people pitying you, right? You know, that's not something you can really control, but you can control the, your attitude about your busyness, right? You, on the one hand, you can be really, you know, negative about it, or you can present it as this great burden that you have to carry, you know, regardless of if you're busy or not. Or you can look at it on the positive side of it and realize that even your busyness includes a lot of great opportunities, right? And although it can be overwhelming, and I totally get that because I'm there, you have to realize that, you know, even in our busyness, a lot of times the things we complain about are like fantastic opportunities. Like, for example, if you're in a ton of classes right now, or you're in, you're in a ton of organizations or a lot of activities, it might be a lot going on. You may be a little overwhelmed. But compare yourself to someone we heard about through the compassion experience who barely even has a home to live in, food to eat, water to drink, right? The opportunities that we have, as overwhelming as they can be sometimes, really are our blessings in a lot of ways. And so we need to give thanks for those things and remind ourselves that even the things that we're overwhelmed with, like, man, I have so many things to do this week for class. Well, guess what? You're getting a world-class education at a great university, it might be a lot, it might be stressful, but that's a blessing even in itself. It might stink for a few weeks, but in the end, it's a great thing. So, yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, what's your greatest responsibility here in Tuscaloosa? To be, yeah, education. I know it sounds like a mom-dad thing, but it's really true, right? Your greatest responsibility as a student is to get an education. Now, your greatest responsibility as a Christian is to make disciples, right? So those two combine together, right? But you have to remember that it's a great blessing you have even to be here, okay? So look at the fourth one, though, perfectionism. All right, this one will be short, but uh, the idea of perfectionism, which I, if you know me, you know I'm a perfectionist too much sometimes. But this attitude says, right, I can't let up. I can't slack off in this area. Not slack off, it's a bad word. I, I can't let up, we'll say it that way, because I can't make a mistake. So you may be that person who's like overstudying for everything or who's just stressing out about every paper, every quiz, every this, every that, because you've got this mentality that I, I can't mess up. Like, I've got to make, you know, like a perfect score on this. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. You know, and you have this relentless mentality. And <laughs> Jared's like, nope. Um, but, uh, and I mean, some of that can be admired that you want to work hard and you, you want to do everything for the glory of God. I get that. But you probably know this, but that will wear you out in the long run. It will literally exhaust you. Because honestly, I've been there. Like my first year or two of college, I was a perfectionist with the T and it sent me to the hospital. It sent me to the hospital with ulcers, actually. And um, that wasn't very fun. And I began to realize that like this perfectionist mentality of stressing about everything and wanting to get everything perfect, 
couldn't continue because it was literally killing me, right? It's literally breaking my body down. And I, I find great relief in verses like James 3, 2, right? Just the first part of the verse says this, for we all stumble in many ways. For we all stumble in many ways, right? There's no like asterisk by that saying, well, we all stumble, asterisk, except for Kyle and except for, you know, like Charlie, you know, but no, we all stumble. We all make mistakes, right? And the Bible does never put the standard up there for us to where, I'm not talking about sin so much as I am, just, you know, work we have to do in life, right? It doesn't put the standard of, well, you always have to be perfect at everything you do, right? In terms of work. That's a great goal to have, to work hard, but we can't have that burden and that crushing standard of always having to be perfect on us because it will literally wear you out. It will literally exhaust you. So be freed in that. All right, so let's look at, look at the fifth one there really quick. And this may not apply to too many of you, but I thought it was an interesting thought from the book uh, for you. It's posting, the last P. Um, some of us, maybe not anyone here, but this might be for you, think too highly of ourselves because of our presence on social media. I'm not talking about you being like a famous blog writer, right? Maybe, I don't think anyone here is a famous blog writer. Um, but a lot of times we can, maybe so. You'd be like an anonymous Twitter account. I mean, uh, Brent, you, you write some stuff for online somewhere, right? You do the sports stuff. That sounded, <laughs> that sounded derogatory. Somewhere, <laughs> not, not somewhere, you know what I mean. But, um, but some people, I think, I know, right? But some people, I think, there can be a temptation to almost turn our social media accounts into like this outpost for our own glory in some kind of way. Like even Instagram, you, you say like, hey, look at all the cool things I'm doing right now. Or look at this awesome meal that I'm eating. Or, you know... Uh, look how important I am by what I'm doing right now, or you. Exactly. Exactly. Or you Instagram your Bible and your coffee cup in the morning, like, hey, look how spiritual I am, you know, and like, I'm having my quiet time. Exactly. Like, you're drawing attention. Now, I'm not saying that every time you do that is, you know, wrong, because it's hard issues there, but you got to be careful, right? Because you got to wonder, like, if we're honest, social media at its core there's there's some element of like narcissism involved in social media in some ways right because yeah yeah i mean it's almost obvious right because it's we make shrines almost to our our lives in terms of what we're doing and how we feel and every moment of the day i can post for the world to see how i'm feeling about fill in the blank right now right and there's lots of great benefits to social media i'm not doubting at all but we got to be really careful with that and so I think a helpful question to think whenever you're going to post whatever it is, is this. And this really helped me a lot when it came to, I used to post a lot of stupid stuff online. Um, It was like, why am I posting this? Like, what is the point of me posting this right now? Like, am I I doing this to just draw attention to myself in some kind of way? Or is there a greater, like, benefit or greater purpose involved? I know, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. See, me and Jared, we're old enough to wear. Facebook was like actually only for college students. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can't even get on Facebook till I was in college. So, and I'm very glad because, man, if I would have been on Facebook in middle school, oh my gosh, it'd have been awful. <laughs> oh, I was a MySpace kid. Oh, I was a MySpace kid all the way. All the way. So you get the idea. Do what? 
Yes. Well, hey, yes. let me point you to a verse that kind of goes along with this. All right, and we're going to actually unpack it in a second. But let me point you to one more verse with that. It applies to a lot more than social media, but it's a helpful verse. Uh, Matthew 6, 1, all right, near the beginning of Christ's Sermon on the Mount, he says this. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness or acts of righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. That's a convicting verse, right? Because what that says is all the times that you do something, even if it's like a good thing, it's an act of righteousness, it's a thing that it's like even a good Christian thing to do. If your heart behind that is just to draw attention to yourself, yeah, like guess what your reward is? The attention. Like that, that's literally like God's like, well, congratulations. Like the attention you got. Yeah, God's like golf clapping up there. Like, you know, he's like, no, it's like, congratulations. The attention is, is the only reward they've received. God is not honored in that at all because he knows your heart, right? And that's kind of the whole idea of the Sermon on the Mount is God looks at our heart, not simply what we do on the outside. But for us, when it comes to a lot more than social media, we have to ask ourselves, so why am I doing this? And that, that's why I gave you that question there um, right after the posting thing. And here's a question for you when it comes to confronting your pride and even your busyness. Think about this. Am I trying to do good or am I, or, sorry, am I trying to do good or to make myself look good? Am I trying to do good or to make myself look good? Now, you can get into some crazy inception-like thoughts of, you know, like examining your heart and like freaking out, like, well, am I really trying to do good or am I trying to make, like, I'm not trying to make you freak out and getting caught in that paralysis of analysis of overthinking everything, right? I'm not asking for that. But just as you go throughout the things you're doing, activities, whatever, ask yourself that question, am I trying to do good or make myself look good? Because a lot of times I think our heart is maybe looking for some attention. Um, but we saw in Matthew 6, 1 that Christ says, if we're simply seeking the approval of people for what we do, even the good things, that's all we get is that. So the kind of bottom line with that first thing is this. It's okay to be busy sometimes because that's part of life, but it's never okay to be busy just to feed your pride. Let's look at that second diagnosis tonight. Diagnosis number two. So we're going to switch gears a little bit. It's this. I'm trying to do what God doesn't expect me to do. So if you saw my Facebook post, it was pride and presumption. I use presumption because it's kind of like expectation and it fit into pride and prejudice. And so, uh, <laughs> but here's the thing. Here's what I'm going with, with the, I'm trying to do what God doesn't expect me to do. All right, here's the thing. So Sunday, you heard a great message from Colby, by the way. That was a fantastic Sunday. Um, you heard a great message about compassion, right? And all the needs in the world. And you've all seen the commercials on TV with the kids in Africa who are starving. And, you know, like you can see their ribs you know, and everything. And our response to that, as it should be, is, man, like, I need to do something, right? I, I, you know, like for Compassion Sunday, you may be like, man, I want to adopt every kid they have. Like, I want to sponsor every kid that Compassion can offer. Or maybe you think about a sermon that you hear, like a sermon on giving, on missions, or evangelism. Uh, it can be a temptation to walk away from those things, not feeling like, man, that was good, that was challenging, but just to feel like, man, now I have to do more. Like, I feel this burden of, gosh, well, Colby preached a great message on missions. Man, I got to add another mission trip to my schedule now. Oh, I got to add more time to do evangelism. Oh, I got to give more money to church. Like, it's this have to, like, oh, I, it's another burden kind of thing. I know that it's not supposed to be that way, but I think if you've been in church very long, you've felt that before, right? This kind of burden of having to do more. And even in our personal lives, think about this. 
if I asked, you know, Jared, right, because he's a seminary guy, right? Jared, do, do you pray enough? No, yeah, right. Yeah. Who, who can ever say yes to that? You, you never, yeah, Jesus can, yeah. But like, if we think about prayer, like, we can't say, yeah, I, I pray enough, because I don't. Um, you know, even, uh, do we share the gospel enough? No, right? Because it's a thing we should always be growing in. But what happens is, what really happens for us is that we end up becoming very content living in a mild state of disappointment in our lives. That we begin to feel these weights from sermons and from other things. And instead of being challenged in different ways, we just begin to get used to living in a mild state of disappointment in our Christian lives, which is, from what I see in the New Testament, not the kind of life that God calls us to live. And so, but for some of us, we have this crushing burden of trying to do more than what God expects us to do. And I think that's a reason that a lot of people don't come to church. It's because they're like, man, life's already hard enough as it is. Why would I ever go to a place where they're gonna tell me to do more stuff? Like I've already got my kids and my job and this and this and this. I don't need church because I don't need to go and have someone tell me, oh, I need to be reading my Bible more. I need to be giving to the church more. I need to be going to these me Bible studies. Like, I'm not saying that's an accurate perception, but I'm saying that's what I think some people feel when they think about churches. Why would I want to go there and just be told how much more things I need to be doing in my life? And so you think about even the needs of the world when you hear about poverty, clean water crisis, sex trafficking, all those kind of things. Naturally, we, we should care about those things. We should feel a burden for those kind of things. We should want to be a solution to the problem. But here's what happens a lot of times. We just get so overwhelmed when we know what to do. We're like, man, there's so many problems in the world. Like, where do I even start? Like, I don't even know what to do. Like, I felt that when I was in Uganda. Like, you, you, you show up in a country where the average person makes like five bucks a day for a family. You show up as a Western, Western college graduate with more money in my savings account than they'll ever imagine. You know, like, you're like, what do I even do? Like, how do I start? Like, what? I see kids in the street who are eating, you know, like trash. Like, what would I do? You know, like, you get overwhelmed. And you begin to feel this burden, and we end up having two options. We either just tune it out and say, well, I'm just not going to deal with that because it's too much. Or we find something to do. So what's an, I, I get that many people in life need to be, like, kind of shaken awoke from their slumber of the needs in the world and that kind of thing. But tonight, what I want to talk about is kind of the opposite side of that with our busyness talk. It's not that side that doesn't do anything, but the side that feels like they have to do everything. Because I think that other side can really overwhelm you in a lot of different ways. And so I want to address that side that needs to, feels like they need to do everything. And so I think where all that idea comes from is this, is that we have an unrealistic idea of what God expects from us. Because if I asked you, Bobby, does God expect you to do everything? You would say, no. Yeah, we, yeah, we would say no, right? We, we know that God doesn't expect us to do everything because that's, of course he doesn't, right? But does the way that we live and do our hearts really live out that is the question. Because we can say, of course he doesn't. But then we can go about our lives feeling like the weight of the world is on our shoulders and being overwhelmed at every moment when we have these false expectations that God expects us to do what we can't do, right? So here's the thing. What does God really expect of us? To, to answer that question, I want to look at Romans 12. All right, we're going to walk through this, uh, kind of overview it qu- quickly tonight. I'm not going to unpack everything in this chapter because we would be here for a lot longer and than we have time for tonight. But I want to walk through Romans 12 a little bit tonight. I want to give you really six things, and we'll kind of speed through this, so don't worry. Um, but let's read. So we're going to be in Romans 12 for a while, so you can actually flip to that one. 
if you like to, but I'm going to start with Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. All right, so what does God expect from us? Here's what Paul says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So stop there. So if you don't know the context of Romans, Romans 12, Paul's just spent the last 11 chapters kind of unpacking two things, the problem of sin in the world and then God's plan of salvation in Christ. Very big picture of Romans. Now he's going to spend the rest of the letter unpacking um, the process of how people respond to Christ's salvation that God has made available. And so when Paul says right there in verse 1, by the mercies of God, or other translations say, in view of God's mercy, he's saying, okay, in response to what God has done for us, how do we respond? Another way you could say it is, okay, what, what does God expect of us now that he has saved us in Christ? Now, what does he really expect of us? And, and he says right there, right? He says, he expects us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to him. We don't grow um, content with that state of mild disappointment, but instead we offer it all as a sacrifice for what Christ has done. Our obedience is the result of what God has done for us, not something that we manufacture um, on our own. We offer our whole lives to God as an offering to please him. That's our spiritual act of worship. That word spiritual is uh, the Greek word that kind of can almost mean logical as well. So it's, uh, it's like logikos, I want to say. It's basically, it's like the idea of it's, if our, it's our expected, our reasonable act of worship. Like in view of what God has done, the only reasonable, the only logical way that we should really respond is by offering everything to him. Because if he's offered everything for us, what else could we do? But here's the thing. Paul reminds us right there in that, that this sacrificial life is not on our own effort. It's not us willing this up in our own strength. We're called to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, right? But how do we renew our minds? Well, I mean, I'm not sure about you, but I haven't been able just to sit down and be like, mind, renew yourself. Like, renew. It just doesn't work that way, right? The way we renew our minds is by the process that God has put forth through the church. So things like reading God's word, things like prayer, things like living in Christian community and other spiritual disciplines, right? Those are the ways that God has given us to renew our minds. But even at the, at the source of all that, the true thing that renews our minds is the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is, is the power that works through all the other things that we do in order to renew our minds. And that's a big encouragement for us because here's what it means. It means two things. First, God's going to finish what he started. So the first thing I want you to put in your blank there is trust God in the process. Trust God in the process. Because God is going to finish what he started in you. Paul says in Philippians that he he who began the good work in you will um, be faithful to finish it on the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to finish what he started in you. He hasn't left us on earth to decipher some kind of crazy Morse code of spiritual life, but he's put his word in our hands and his spirit in our hearts in order to grow us in the image of Christ, right? So if we're going to be faithful, if we're simply faithful to the word and follow the Spirit's guidance, then guess what? We're going to be doing what God expects us to do. We're going to be doing what he expects us to do. We don't like to have this lingering feeling of disappointment in life, like we're not doing enough. Because if we're being faithful to what God's showing us through his word and trusting the Spirit and following God's guidance, then we're going to be faithful. We're going to be doing what God expects for us. But the second thing that means 
is that it's a process. So first it means God's going to finish what he started, but it also means it's a process. Renewal is an instant, right? A renewal is a process. And so we come to Christ in a moment when we surrender our lives to him, but then that salvation is worked out in a process throughout the rest of our lives. So God doesn't expect you, Matt, God doesn't expect you to be in the same spiritual place as Keith Pugh. <laughs> because Keith Pugh's been a Christian for a long time, right? He doesn't expect any person in here to be a, at the same spiritual level of someone who's been a Christian for 50 years, right? God expects you to be where you're at, right? He expects you to be faithful to his word, faithful to the Spirit's guidance, but not to be in the same place as a, as a Teresa Pugh or that kind of thing, but to be faithful to where you're at right now. And honestly, that, that's a big relief because it means we can take off some of this burden of expectation. But here's the second one to kind of go through these. Lose the Messiah complex. Lose the Messiah complex. All right? Here's what I mean by that. Look at Romans 12, 3, the next verse. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We already unpacked that a little bit, but we have to think of ourselves with realistic expectations, knowing our weaknesses and knowing our strengths. Here's a newsflash for you. You are not Jesus. You're not. That may, may be a wake-up call to you. You're, you're not the Messiah, right? Um, if you even think about, if you think about what Jesus did in the world, even Jesus didn't do everything, right? Think about his life. He didn't meet every need in all of Israel. Uh, he left people waiting to be healed. He left one town sometimes to go preach somewhere else. He spent 30 years in training and three years in ministry, right? But yet in all of that, Jesus did exactly what God expected him to do. And it wasn't everything in terms of the sense we think of in, in meeting every need, right? And so for you, it's not your responsibility to save the world. <laughs> Jesus has already done that in some ways, right? You're called to be faithful where God has placed you. So repeat after me, I am not the Messiah. Good, all right. Write that on your mirror like I am not the Numpkin. All right, so you're not Jesus, all right? Third thing is this. Celebrate your gifts and opportunities to serve. Celebrate your gifts and opportunities to serve. Look at Romans 12, 4 through 8. It says this. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, the many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So what that means there for us is that in the body of Christ, we all have different gifts. Every Christian is filled with the Spirit, and you're given, as a Christian, if you're in Christ, you've given a specific spiritual gift or spiritual gifts to serve in the church and to serve in the world. But here's the thing, we all have different gifts, right? Not everyone has the same gift. Uh, if, if large groups of children terrify you, you're probably not called to work in the kids' ministry, right? Yeah, it's a relief, right? Um, if you are tone deaf, you're probably not called to serve in the praise team, right? And that's okay. Because although God may have not gifted you in those ways, he has gifted you in another way. So your calling is not to feel like, well, I can't do that, therefore I'm inadequate, you know, whatever. But you don't need to compare your gifts to someone else's gifts but to be faithful in the way that God has gifted you, right? And to seek to grow in those things and be faithful in that, all right? Don't covet someone else's gifts. Celebrate their gifts. Celebrate your own gifts, right? 
and celebrate the ones that God has blessed you with, all right? But here's the thing. I, you, you can hear that, and here's what you can think. Um, that doesn't mean that just because you don't think you have the gift of evangelism doesn't mean that you don't share the gospel, right? Just because you don't think you have the gift of service doesn't mean that it gives you an excuse to not serve, right? Because here's the thing. Spiritual gifts aren't, they're not meant for negative excuses. You're not, like, if I come to you and say, hey, will you serve this way? You're, you can't be like, well, I don't think I have the gift for that, so I'm going to pass it on to someone else. Now, in some cases, you may not have the gift of singing, so I'm not going to come to you to sing and praise team, right? But spiritual gifts aren't meant to give you excuses, right? They're not used, to, uh, used for cop-outs out of serving. What they're meant for is equipping of believers to be fruitful in your ministry, all right? So that, that's a tension, right? But they're not meant to be cop-outs. Oh, I don't have that gift, right? Because call, everyone's called to share the gospel as a Christian, right? Everyone's called to serve in some kind of way. But our gifts are yet meant to be ways that we can be fruitful in how we serve, all right? Third, exactly. Exactly. I'm actually going to get to that in a second. So that's a good point. Serve where the need is. All right. Next thing is this. Um, I didn't give you a, a verse for this because it kind of goes on as a side note here. Caring is not the same as doing real quick, all right? Caring is not the same as doing. Uh, John Piper once said this. He said, we should care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. We should care about all suffering. But he used the word care there, I think, very intentionally because, excuse me, we should care about all kinds of suffering, right? We should care when we hear about the suffering of those in poverty. We should care about the travesties of what's happening in the, in the sex slavery industry. We should care about the billions of people in the world that do not have access to the gospel. We should be moved, right? We should pray for those people. We should want to do something, right? right? But we can't do everything, can we? We should care about all forms of suffering, especially eternal suffering, but we can't do something about all forms of suffering, right? I don't say that as a negative statement. I say that as a comfort because we all have certain roles we can play that we can't do everything. We have to trust God to move in our hearts, to move us towards specific issues, identify where the needs are, like Hannah said, and then go after meeting those needs, right? But remember, caring is not the same as doing, right? You can care deeply about something in some ways and be moved to pray for it, but you may not have the same opportunities to serve in that kind of way, and that's okay, right? Because caring and doing are not the same. Fourth thing is this, uh, fifth thing, fifth thing, excuse me, is this, remember the church. Go back to Romans 12. Look at verses nine through 16 really quick. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the, low, with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. It's a lot there we could talk about, but in terms of our context tonight, I want to point out the context of that is Paul's talking about one another. You know, the one another commands in, in the Bible are talking about Christian community, right? He's telling the church in Rome in, in this letter to practice these things like loving each other in a genuine way, brotherly affection, being fervent in the spirit, serving the Lord. He's talking about doing that in the context of church community. And I bring this up because here's the thing. One beautiful part of the church is that we're the body of Christ. 
and that we all have different roles as different parts of the body. But that means that as we support someone else doing something in ministry, as part of the body of Christ, that means that you're doing it in a way too. So you may not be called to specifically go to the Middle East and share the gospel. But if you support someone by praying and maybe even financially supporting them as they go to the Middle East, well, as part of the body of Christ, guess what? You're going. You're going to the Middle East. You may not be equipped and gifted to preach the Bible like Colby or Keith on a Sunday morning. But as you pray for your pastor, as you support the ministry of the church, guess what? As part of the body of Christ, you're preaching. You're teaching the word. Now, I'm not saying you're physically doing that, obviously. But the picture is God has not called you to do everything, to do all the work of ministry in the world. But guess what? God has called the body of Christ as a whole to do everything. And so as you contribute in your specific way that God has gifted you and called you and um, shown the need to you, you're contributing to that big picture. And you can support other people as they do the work of ministry as well. So don't forget the church. Remember that even though you can't do everything, you can support other people as they do ministry that you can't do as the body. Last thing is this, and we'll begin to wrap up, all right? Is serve the world however you can. Serve the world however you can. Romans 12, 17 through 21 says this. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by... For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, sorry, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. So we heard a great message Sunday about our call to serve the needy. Uh, But we shouldn't be overcome with evil. We shouldn't be overwhelmed with the idea of the work that has to be done in the world. But instead, we should seek to be the hands and feet in Christ and serve the least of these however we can. But like we said, there's so many least of these in the world Like, where do we even start? Like, what do we do? Well, remember, like we said a second ago, caring is not the same as doing, so we have to find certain needs and meet what we can. And uh, Kevin Young in this book gives a really great thought here. He says, first off, our circle of influence is always going to be smaller than our circle of concern. right, we can be concerned and care about a lot of things, but we won't have the influence to change all those things. So there's two good questions that we need to think about when it comes to ways we can meet needs. Number one is this. What are the needs that are closest to me? What needs are closest to me that I can help meet? But number two, who are the people who are least able to help themselves that I can help? So what are the needs closest to me? And who are the people who are least able to help themselves that I can help out? Because a lot of times, here's what we can do. We can be really quick to jump on an airplane and go to Africa and meet the needs of a kid there or meet the needs of a village there, but neglect the homeless in our community. We could be really big to get an airplane and go and share the gospel in India, but not walk across the hall to our roommate or not share the gospel with our friend in class, right? We have the tendency to always jump to the, the sexy, romantic, big kind of things like going on a plane to third world country, right? But yet we neglect the things closest to us. I'm not saying that going on a plane and going to Africa is bad. I did that, right? I'm not saying those things are bad, but if we're simply going toward those things and ignoring the needs that are closest to us, and especially the people around us that have needs that we can meet, 
and who are least able to help themselves, then honestly, we're being hypocritical, right? So we have to ask that question and look with the eyes of faith and look um, with eyes guided by the Holy Spirit to what we can do in our community as well. Okay? Now, I know there's lots of questions that come up with that, with serving in different ways. We don't have to go into all that tonight. Lots of questions with that. But my big point is those few questions. And so with that, I want to close up with this and we'll, uh, we'll be done. Is we talked a lot tonight about doing. A lot about doing this, doing that, feeling like we have to do everything. Uh, and I think there can be a tension there because when we think about what God expects from us, we have to remember that in the end, we can never fulfill God's expectations on our own. That we can never be good enough to meet God's expectations on our own. Ultimately, the only person who's ever met God's expectations is Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus came and lived a perfect life, lived a life of being tempted in every way but resisted every temptation, and then died on a cross for our sins and died in our place, died for all the times that we haven't met God's expectations, right? Jesus became sin for us, became, our, uh, became all the letdowns that we've, that we've done so that we could be saved, so that we could receive God's love and not his wrath again. And so all that we have to do in order to receive God's true approval, right, is simply put our faith in Christ. Put our faith in Christ and turn from our sins, repent and believe. Because on the cross, like I've said a lot of times in the past couple of months, Jesus' last words on the cross, or some of his last words were, it is finished, right? It's done. That he died in our place. There was nothing that we had to do in order to earn God's approval because God's approval is now given to us freely through Christ for those that put our faith in him, right? So when we talk about doing, we have to remember that although God calls us to do a lot of things in the world, right? All that really has to be, be done has already been done, right? That Christ has died on the cross for us. And so all the doing needs to lead us and remember the done that's already happened on the cross, right? And so last thought is this. In Christ, remember, there is no good we could ever do to make God love us more. There's no bad thing we could do to make God ever love us less, right? In Christ, God's love is fixed on us. And so all this stuff about doing, we've talked about tonight, all the busyness, all the activities we have, it always has to be rooted in what God has already done for us in Christ. And so we can't view it as burdens of, you know, well, I got to do this so that, God, so that God will, you know, love me or approve of me. No. In Christ, God has already looked at you and said, you're my child, right? With you, I am well pleased. And so from that approval, we get to live joyfully and serve him and get to meet the needs of the least of these, right? And get to go and share the gospel. We, we, it's not a have to, it's a get to, right? It's not a have to, it's a get to, okay? So with that, I want to pray for us. We'll be done. All right. Father, we thank you so much for, for the love that you've shown us in Christ. As we wrestle with these questions of busyness and maybe doing too much or maybe feeling the, the burden of having to do so much, First off, we want to thank you that we, we live in a place where we have so many of these opportunities to even be busy in the ways that we do, that we have the chance to be busy uh, at school, to get a great education, that we have the chance to be busy at a, at a job or, or a job provides for our needs and gives us money and, and to be able to put a, a roof over our heads and, and food on the table. or A lot of the things that we um, 
that we complain about sometimes if we were honest are things that people all over the world would, uh, would give up everything for, that they would be overjoyed. They'd be overjoyed to have the kind of crazy, busy schedule that we have. And so I pray, Lord, that we would have an attitude of thankfulness that you've given us so many opportunities, Lord. But I also pray that our hearts would not be seeking the approval of, of man in what we do. And they also wouldn't be seeking the approval of you in terms of eternal approval, Lord. Because you've already shown through Christ that you, uh, that you love us and that through Christ we've received your approval. And so now from that approval, from that love, we can go and do things. But that we never have to do all these things in order to earn your love because we could never earn your love, Lord. So Father, I pray that that would rest and really burrow deeply into the hearts of these students tonight, Father, that they would um, understand your love. Maybe if um, someone here has never really put their faith in Christ and and, um, has this lingering feeling of they have to do more in order to be loved by God, maybe even in order to, to go to heaven when they die, Lord. I pray that they would see tonight there's nothing they can do to earn your love. There's nothing they can do to receive your approval by good things that they do and, and, and doing less bad things. But it only comes through Christ. It only comes through putting their faith in Jesus who died on the, cro- the cross for our sins and was raised back to life to demonstrate that that debt was paid. So help us to live in the freedom and the joy of getting to serve you because of that. I pray you would guide these students throughout the rest of the week and use them for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.